Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where I've been teaching A&P since 2002. Today we're going to continue on with the endocrine system, but we're going to focus our discussion specifically on two different glands, the thyroid and the four parathyroid glands that are embedded in the thyroid. Those glands together secrete four different hormones. The thyroid gland is responsible for three, which are two thyroid hormones and calcitonin, and the parathyroid gland only secretes parathyroid hormone. So we're going to focus on those glands and what their hormones do. But first, I have a very special guest for you today, and you really want to hear this conversation. Jennifer Bentley has been an ER nurse, an endoscopy nurse, and a specialist in nurse informatics. I suspect that many of you are considering nursing, and Jen has seen it all, so I think this conversation is going to be really interesting for most of you. Let's start with a little background. In the fall of 1990, I moved into my freshman dorm, Perry Hall, at Cook College, which was part of Rutgers University in New Jersey, USA. Room 301, in fact. Shortly after that, I met my across-the-hall neighbor, Jennifer Bentley. And we remained friends throughout our time in college. We had some of the same classes, we went to parties together, we played sports together, all the cool college stuff. Fun fact, actually, we didn't realize it until later, but we were also in a New Jersey State choir together when we were in middle school. And I'm pretty sure I sent my first ever email to Jen in the early 1990s. Now, it's been 30 years since we graduated from Rutgers, where Jen got her bachelor's degree in biology, then she moved on and got another Bachelor of Science degree, this time from the University of Virginia, and this time it was in nursing. So that's a BSN. And then eventually she got a Master of Science degree in nursing informatics from Thomas Edison State University in New Jersey. She has served as an ER nurse, and that was a really long time, and is currently working at St. Luke's University Health Network in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania as an endoscopy nurse. Now for those of you who don't know, Endoscopy is a procedure that uses an endoscope, which is a camera that can be inserted into a natural opening like the mouth or the rectum. The camera is then used to examine the lumina and cavities of the organs it can reach. So we can see the mucosa and we can look for abnormalities like lesions, polyps, or obstructions. You've probably heard of a colonoscopy, which is when it's used to examine the large intestine. Jen is also running nursing informatics for the endoscopy division there. Now don't worry, she tells us exactly what that means, because I didn't know either. Jen and I talked about her decision to become a nurse after first wanting to be a research biologist, the schooling required, and her experience as an ER nurse and endoscopy nurse. She has a tremendous amount of knowledge to share about becoming a nurse and the different paths available to nurses. So I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with this dear old friend of mine as much as I enjoyed having it. All right. So Jen Bentley, my old friend, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. Thanks. So we were old friends from college. I think freshman year, we lived almost across the hall from each other. And, um, yep. and now you are a nurse and you're doing all kinds of stuff that I could, didn't even imagine nurses were doing. So I'm very interested in hearing about, about that. So it's my understanding that you're an endoscopy nurse. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing what that means, what does an endoscopy nurse do? Endoscopy nursing is an interesting sort of field because we do everything from 
being in a procedure room with a gastroenterologist who's performing endoscopy procedures on patients. You're doing upper endoscopies, like an EGD going through the mouth, going into the stomach, the first part of the um, duodenum to look for, you know, pathology, look, make sure everything's normal, see what's going on down there. Um, as well as we do colonoscopies, other end, um, looking uh, all through the length of the large intestine for polyps, for anatomical differences, mucosal abnormalities, things like that. What we do with those procedures is nurses, typically there's two roles. There's uh, one where you assist, where you're using instrumentation to take whatever the endoscopist wants out of the patient, whether it's a polyp, it's a tissue sample, it's whatever they find. And the other part of being an endoscopy nurse in the room is you're documenting. You're the one documenting the procedure in the software or on paper, depending on where you are. The other part of the endoscopy nurse job is you are sort of like a bedside nurse in a way. You admit patients, you, you recover patients, you discharge patients. So, you know, you're talking to patients about their history, their meds, their allergies, all of those sorts of things. You're putting in their IV, you're um, giving fluids, uh, meds if they're needed prior to the procedure. Um, and then on the backside, when they're done um, with their procedure and they're recovering from anesthesia, you're making sure they wake up appropriately. They're monitoring the vitals taking out their IV, giving them a snack because, you know, you come to endoscopy, you get your procedure, you get the nap, um, and then you wake up and you have snacks because you haven't eaten for however long. Um, and then, you know, you send them out the door. Um, pretty much our patients come in healthy. They pretty much leave the same way as long as, you know, nothing went untoward during the procedure. It's, we're not causing pain. We're going in through established openings, not making anything else. And most of the stuff we do on the inside doesn't hurt. It's not painful. So, um, so it's nice that you kind of get a mix of you're not going in every day and doing the same thing every day. You know that you, you could be assigned to pre, you could be assigned to post-op, um, you could be in the room, you could be the assistant in the room, or you could be the documenter in the room. Kind of interesting. It gives you a multitude of things to do during your day, and it's not just um, stamping widgets every day, Right. which I really so, enjoyed. That is pretty interesting. I'm, so I'm wondering, thinking that if I was to schedule an endoscopy, it would probably be like normal business hours. So is the schedule of an endoscopy nurse better than, let's say, the schedule of an ER nurse? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I always like to say ER nurses retire to endoscopy because of the schedule of an ER nurse is difficult because you could work. Usually you're hired for a certain shift. You either work 12 hours, you know, and you can stagger that anywhere. You start at 7 a.m., 11 a.m., 3 p.m., 7 p.m., any variation in there. Um, but you have to work weekends um, and off shifts, whereas endoscopy, we're open from seven to five and you work some variation of an eight hour shift in there. Um, I used to do 10 hour shifts. I used to do 6.30 to five, four days a week. So I had a day off during the week and I stopped working weekends, which was kind of nice. The only hazard with endoscopy is on call. So if somebody shows up in the emergency room and there's food lodged in their esophagus or they're bleeding from somewhere, they'll call you in on a weekend or in the, in, in the middle of the night. But that's okay because yeah. you, you don't get called in in the middle of the night or on, uh, for nonsense. You usually know it's a legit reason to go. Do you have any stories of the craziest thing you saw in an yeah. endoscopy? Of course. Of course. All right. Um, so let's hear you know, the, I think probably the craziest thing I've ever done is I got called in to take out 
Um, it was a prisoner. He was a young man. He was probably early 20s. And he just didn't want to be in prison anymore, which I get. So he swallowed a plastic spoon, like, you know, toddler spoons, you know, those hard plastic mm -hmm. toddler spoons. It was a little bit longer than that. He swallowed one of those and he swallowed like a Bic lighter. And obviously they didn't get down all the way. So we right. had to go retrieve it. Um, it was, we actually did it in combination with um, an ENT because the x-ray showed that the lighter was pretty far up and it was like literally just below his upper esophageal sphincter. So we weren't sure we were going to be able to get down to get the spoon out. So they obviously um, completely paralyzed and anesthetized this guy. And um, they ENT came with a rigid, I don't even remember what it was. It was a really long, rigid scope thing and it was like not our scope it was like it almost looked like a really long like speculum that they put in and he went in and could look through it and he went in with these really like long narrow forceps and pulled it out wow and then we went in with the scope we i we lassoed the um we, we it's a snare it looks like a lasso we okay. snared the end of the spoon and we slowly pulled that out but i've never retrieved anything i was like wow that was pretty amazing <laughs> wow so. so a disposable lighter yeah like could you imagine what havoc that would have wreaked in his esophagus if it exploded in there if we punctured it oh, you know i don't like think lighter, lighter fluid, fluid and yeah and an esoph yeah. esophageal mucosa mm -mm, no not a good situation Plus, not to mention no. the toxic effects that <laughs> if he and, accidentally yeah, and, ingested it and absorbed it. <laughs> and just to remind my listeners who I know are studying, the esophageal mucosa is stratified squamous epithelium. So <laughs> very nerdy <laughs> academic part. So, uh, but I'm kind of amazed. You know, another cool anatomical thing is um, I love talking about the esophagus in my class because it's the only place in your body where the, the top third is skeletal muscle the middle third is a combination of mm -hmm. skeletal and smooth muscle and then the distal third is all smooth muscle so it goes from being voluntary to a combination of voluntary and involuntary to completely involuntary which is why um swallowing is kind of a voluntary and involuntary mechanism in fact one of my students asked me about this i think it was david blaine he did this um he did this trick where he swallowed a frog and then brought oh. it back up alive and whole. Oh. And he was asking me how he did that. And I was like, well, I don't know how he did it. But if I had to guess anatomically, he probably didn't swallow it all the way down because he can't, you can't probably. voluntarily control the smooth muscle of your stomach and, and esophagus to bring it back up. So he probably swallowed it about halfway down mm -hmm. and then used the voluntary muscles, controlled them to bring it back up. That's an interesting one. So I guess you've never had to pull a live frog out of somebody's uh, esophagus. No, thankfully not. We've seen parasites on colonoscopy. That's kind of unnerving. I, I would imagine, colonoscopy yeah, Looking right? for bleeding and you're like, what are those white things and why are they moving? Man. Holy horrifying. Yeah, it was like the, the gastroenterologist was thrilled. So you talked about being an ER nurse and you were an ER nurse for a long time. Oh, yeah. So, so tell me what that's like versus your cushy life you've got now. Oh, God. I have I'm a way cushy life right now. Um, even endoscopy is a way cushy life compared to ER nursing. The best thing I can can compare it to is 
you know the the meme of the the dog with the hat and the sitting at the table and everything around him is on fire he's like this is fine i'm fine this is okay that's kind of like what er nursing is like (laughs) i would imagine (laughs) like um i've only i only worked in level one trauma centers um at large institutions so i may not have um i i have i've definitely seen the worst of the worst um so not all er nurse jobs are like that but um my career was pretty much chaotic and insane and um but it was what i enjoyed i don't like the same routine every day i don't i didn't like you know i did i couldn't go to work and do the same thing every day and i i still don't um so it was always nice to be like okay i'm not doing anything and it's like oh look here comes an mi and a stroke and then a bus crash and then you'd get like i cut my finger and I have back pain and things like that. So you would be caring for a variety of patients um, at any given moment. Um, it's changed a bit since I started. They now sort of differentiate out. Like if you're like urgent care patients don't go to the main ER in a lot of places, which is nice. So if you're working in urgent care, you're pretty much doing, you know, finger splinting, things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it was a... It was a great experience. I met some of my best friends in life because you sort of have a shared, um, almost like a shared trauma. Right, <laughs> like right. How did we survive imagine. that night? How did everybody, how did we keep all those patients alive for all night long, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it. if you don't like doing the same thing every day and you like not knowing what's going to come through the door, emergency nursing is for you as long as you can come you know you can organize yourself Uh, my day was always organized by okay if I don't do x who's gonna die and it was like okay I need to go see that patient first the guy with the finger can wait you sort of triage your own workload Mm -hmm. um so it was uh fun (laughs) So, so tell me what you meant by level one trauma center what does that mean? Um, like, what's a level two trauma center? Like, what what's the hierarchy of so, that? Uh, there's, I don't think there's, I think there's four levels now. There used to only be three. Level one is um, usually associated with a major um, teaching institution. You have to have certain um, criteria, like you need to have neurosurgery on call all, or on staff all the time. You have to have pretty much a lot of the certain specialties. You have to have an OR that's running, that will run 24 hours a day that's staffed um so these are, these are the, so level one is where you're going to have like the biggest things mm-hmm. like like yep. major injuries they're looking for level one mm-hmm. so we knew each other in undergrad and um i know that you were a biology major and that's what you graduated with and then you shifted to nursing after undergrad which is really common most of my students they're in nursing school as either a second career or they already have a degree in something else and then they decide nursing is the way to go for them and they have taken their prereqs to get their nursing degree. So since you have a similar story to that, what would you say was the impetus for that decision instead of go like straight bio? So I always thought as a biologist, I wanted to be a biologist. I wanted to work in a lab. I wanted to do research. I wanted to do those things. That's what I went into college thinking. And then my junior and senior years, I did uh, research with the animal science department. Uh, I did genetic research um, with sheep. Um, 
And I was in a lab like, you know, six, eight, 10 hours a day by myself. And I was like, well, this is terrible. I haven't seen another human in like 12 hours. And I was like, nope, I need to go work with people. I can't do this. So instead of switching out of college, I was like, well, you know what? I've got three plus years in. Let's just get the biology degree. And um, I think my senior year, I applied to a bunch of second degree programs. So I, I, I applied to um, a bunch of different schools to that would take everything I did as a biology major that I was getting my degree for. And they would say, okay, you don't need to do any of that in nursing school. We'll give you a bachelor's degree in nursing because we believe you can read, write, do math and science. And all you need to do is take the core nursing curriculum. Um, so that's what I did. I went to uh, UVA and I got a bachelor's in nursing. So then you got an MSN. Yeah. So, so, so eventually you got a master's in uh, in nursing. So tell me about that, because I think a lot of my students so, are probably thinking that as a long term goal. So I, uh, you know, like like a lot of people had a midlife crisis about 10 years ago and had been an ER nurse for probably almost 20 years at that point. No, it was probably about 15 years at that point. I was like, I can't keep doing this. This is killing me. Um, because it is, it, it's a stressful job. I mean, even to, you know, I'm a fairly laid back person in life, um, but it was definitely um, the stress of it. And I had, ha I, at that point, my son was four. I didn't see him all the time. I was like, okay, we need to make some changes in life. Um, so I went to, uh, I did an online master's degree in nursing informatics um, through Thomas Edison State. It was State College then. It's now mm -hmm. State University. Um, and it was fantastic. I didn't have to do clinical. It was a master's in nursing with a specialty in informatics. And I got my master's degree, I think, in a little less than, a little less than three years. But I did have to do a practicum with it. So being an endoscopy nurse and having one day off a week was fantastic because I would get paid for four days a week. And then my fifth day, I would go do my practicum, which was through the IT department at St. Luke's. I helped with data abstraction for the meaningful use measures for the hospital. So I was doing like stroke data abstraction and things like that, but also learning, you know, what informatics was all about in the real world. That's something I want to know more about. So tell me what is, what is nursing informatics? So nursing informatics is basically how clinical nurses interact with computers because now most everything is computer documentation. It's, you know, everything used to be on paper and people used to have to abstract from data, data from charts to meet, you know, quality measures, uh, Medicare payment things, um, you name it. Now everything's in a, in a computer and it's all sort of like automated. Um, and you have code built in the background to say, okay, these patients meet this measure. Um, nurses, you know, in my regular endoscopy life, I document everything in a computer. It was on paper. They built, um, we use a software platform and it houses everything that a patient, you need to document on a patient. Well, not everything. I would say 95% of everything that gets documented on patients is done in a computer. I mean, like, I think I took classes like, I took some database management classes. I took um, mm -hmm. consumer informatics, which is like the patient side of things. Like how do patients interact with healthcare software? Like, you know, how, how do you look up your own stuff? Do you understand what you're reading? Health literacy, things like that. 
but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty much, it, it's, you know, nurses that are computer geeks. Okay. <laughs> and so now you put all that data together for the hospital? No, actually, I don't get to do much of that. I, that's, I like it when I have to do data collection because it's sort of like my, where I came from and what I understand most. I am the um, application analyst for the um, software that the gastroenterology service line uses. My goal, overarching goal, whether it's my hospital's overarching goal, my boss's overarching goal, my goal is to try to make nurses' lives easier um, through fixing their documentation to making it more intuitive, um, less steps, less clicks, so they can spend more time with their patients and not more time on the computer. I built a risk score for um, patients who can or cannot be seen at an ambulatory surgery center because they have different rules. Like if you have certain criteria, you should not go to an ambulatory surgery center because it's a standalone. If you have a problem, you potentially could have a poor outcome. So I built a scoring system based on rules. It basically looks for certain data in a patient's chart. These were criteria that were determined by our anesthesia staff. So they said, you know, you can't have a high BMI. You can't be an uncontrolled diabetic, no history of difficult intubation, things like that. So I build things like that. And then, and then I build scheduling things. And and then I fix things when our end users break stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fixing things in technology seems to be like, uh, among the most time spent. Because uh, like, I use a lot of technology <laughs> for my courses. And troubleshooting seems to be where I spend a lot of my time. So basically, mm-hmm. you're taking some of the subjectivity out of deciding whether or not someone could be in a surgery center or has to have their procedure in a hospital. Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. way, if something goes wrong, I think, I mean, how important is that? I mean, being able to identify when someone might have like a tragic end to a regular procedure, that's fantastic. Good for you. Yeah. And it's, and it's well, and I mean, I, I was given parameters and I just needed to figure out how to look at patient data and, you know, we used to do it with a form. We would have, you know, the people that were scheduling these procedures ask patients their history. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but patients aren't really reliable sources uh, at yeah, times. That I know. <laughs> so if um, if a patient, you know, you go through and the patient's like, nope, 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 nope. I'm fine. I could be done there. But then you look at their chart and it's like, okay, well, you didn't tell us that you were, you know, 400 pounds and only five foot five. And, you know, oh, your last hemoglobin A1C was greater than 10. So you haven't been get, taking your diabetes medicine. And, oh, you have an ejection fraction of less than 40%. Your heart's not so good, is it? <laughs> you know, so this risk score looks for those data elements as well as, um, like, you go to your doctor and they update your problem list and your medical history and things like that. And it looks for that documentation to pull other things into the chart to determine are you at a high risk or a low risk for um, potential badness? So it's pretty cool. That's fantastic. I mean, thankfully, it exists in the system. I didn't build the concept of a scoring system. I was given a framework and I just built the rules that looked for all that data. Right. So, and well, basically, you've taken out someone having to leaf through a whole bunch of papers so that it can mm-hmm. just automatically, the computer will tell you. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what computers are for. That's why that's, you yep. know, that's like the best thing about them. That's awesome. Well, yeah. And I, um, and I took the subjectivity of a person answering a questionnaire out of it too. So, which is, which is, I right. think probably, yeah, 
they're not very reliable. Right. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to get in the weeds, but um, I'm I'm a huge podcast nut. I listen to a ton of podcasts, and one of my my favorite one is uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, and uh, he has a whole episode on on the fact that we can't even trust anyone's memory, much less mm-hmm. what they're willing to share. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's my favorite episode. It's called, if anyone's interested, it's called, um, it's called, uh, something about Brian Williams, the, the old anchor, uh, save Brian okay. Williams or forgive Brian Williams or, or something like that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it was, it's fantastic. Um, you've been super generous with your time, so I don't want to take up too much more, but I want to ask one more question. Um, and that is like kind of a generic, do you have any advice for current or pre-nursing students? based on your experience as someone who has run the gamut in nursing? Yeah, I have. Um, (laughs) um, I would say that be realistic about what you expect nursing to be. Um, Because I know, I mean, at least I know that when I went through school, everybody was like, I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to help people. And yes, you are. But there is a lot of not baggage, but there's a lot of things that go along with that that are um, that you don't expect. Like you don't expect the conflicts with providers. You don't expect um, you know patient families to be unpleasant. Um, and then there's also the um, I guess I, I call it the sad aspect of being a nurse, which is you have a patient that you know is going to die, and you you know you feel that your job is to help them and make them better, but there are some people you just can't fix and you need to realize that go in with the expectation that, you know, you're going to go through some tough stuff and um, just be prepared for that um, because it's, it's life. Um, right. And you, you need to, you need to be aware that you're going to see all, all spectrum, <laughs> everything on the spectrum of life from, birth to death to the good and the bad and the in-between so and make sure you study your A&P absolutely because that's really the foundation (laughs) it's all built on (laughs) I said to throw that in there Jen that was amazing it was so great to catch up with you Um, I I really am so grateful that you were able to spend some time with me this morning and share your experience and answer my questions I think is going to be enormously helpful for all of these listeners and students. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate you having me. Well, how about all that? Once again, thank you to Jen for joining us. That was a wealth of knowledge, a lot of stuff I did not know, and I'm guessing a lot of you didn't as well. And now you have all this information about what it takes to become a nurse, to get a BSN, to get an MSN, and all of the different ways that you can go with that in terms of a career choice. So I hope you got a lot out of that. I think I did, and um, and I'm really hoping you did as well. So thank you for joining me with that conversation. And having said that, let's move on to the content for today's episode, beginning with the thyroid gland. The thyroid is a pure endocrine gland, much like the pituitary, the pineal, the adrenal, The parathyroid, these are what we call pure endocrine glands. They only secrete hormones. It's all they do. Unlike other tissues that secrete hormones in addition to the other things they do, like the pancreas, which also secretes digestive enzymes. 
The kidneys secrete hormones, the liver secrete hormones, the heart, the skin, the testes, the ovaries, they all secrete hormones even though they have other functions as well. So they're not what we would call pure endocrine glands, but the thyroid gland is. It is the largest pure endocrine gland that the adult human has. And it's found in the anterior neck. It is just anterior to your trachea with two large lobes lateral to the trachea on each side. It's also just inferior to the larynx, which you might have heard of as called the Adam's apple. There's a left lobe and a right lobe of the thyroid gland, and they're on either side of the trachea, and they're connected by a thin piece of thyroid called the isthmus. Much like uh, on a map, an isthmus is a thin piece of land that is connecting two larger pieces of land. Uh, this is kind of like that. The isthmus of the thyroid gland connects the two thyroid lobes, which are on either side of the trachea. If we looked at the thyroid histologically, we would see that inside the thyroid, we have these small compartments called thyroid follicles. And their wall is simple cuboidal epithelial cells. Those are called the follicular cells. And those follicular cells secrete thyroid hormones. Now, there are two hormones that we call, quote unquote, thyroid hormones. And they are triiodothyronine and tetraiodothyronine, which has a couple other names as well. Triiodothyronine is called tri because its molecule has three iodine atoms in it. Tetraiodothyronine is called that because it has four iodine atoms in its molecule. Tetra means four. So we also nickname triiodothyronine T3, and we nickname tetraiodothyronine T4. We also call T4 thyroxin. Now, thyroid hormone is lipid-soluble. T3 and T4 are both lipid-soluble hormones. And I talked about their action because it's unique back in episode 34 when I discussed hormone action. So I'm going to review a little bit about these hormones here, but I'm not going to get back into exactly how they stimulate their target cells. You can review episode 34 for that if you want to review how thyroid hormones specifically affect their target cells. Now, the vast majority, 90% of what the thyroid produces is T4. That's 90%. Only about 10% is T3. Now, these hormones are directly released into the bloodstream, but first they're stored. And they're stored bound to a hormone called thyroglobulin. And that is what is inside the thyroid follicle, thyroglobulin. Now, what these hormones do, these thyroid hormones, they stimulate your metabolic rate. They increase your metabolism. So what's going on is that your brain is monitoring your metabolism. And when your metabolism begins to get low, or let's say your body temperature gets low because you're not generating enough heat, because your cells are not functioning properly, or because it's cold out, your hypothalamus will secrete thyrotropin-releasing hormone, which targets the anterior pituitary gland. It goes directly through the hypophyseal portal system to the anterior pituitary gland and stimulates that to secrete 
thyroid stimulating hormone, also known as thyrotropin. That TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, that's how you'll typically see it on a blood test, is going to get into your bloodstream and target the thyroid gland and stimulate the thyroid gland to secrete T3 and T4. Now, when our cells are active, it means that they're consuming more oxygen because in order for our cells to be active, they have to do work. And in order for us to do work, we need energy, ATP, adenosine triphosphate. That's our energy currency. That's what we use as our energy. We synthesize that ATP from glucose and oxygen. So oxygen consumption is a good way to measure metabolic rate. Now, also when we do work, we have a byproduct because when something is using energy, it isn't always using it at the best efficiency there is, meaning it's not using all of the energy to do the job. So I'm gonna use light bulbs as an example on this. So an old school light bulb called an incandescent light bulb was very inefficient. They use a lot of electricity to produce the light they produce. Newer light bulbs like fluorescent or LED bulbs are much more efficient. So they use more of the electricity that you're putting into them to produce the light. So you're not wasting as much. Now, if you think about the difference between incandescent bulbs, the old school bulbs, and the LED or fluorescent ones, one of the big differences between them is that the incandescent bulbs get really hot and the other ones don't. And the reason is efficiency. Efficiency means for the LED and the fluorescent bulbs, a lot less of the electricity that you're putting into them to produce light is being lost as heat because energy cannot be created nor can it be destroyed. So if the bulb is not using all the energy to make light, it has to be converted to some other form. It can't just go away. What happens is it's lost as heat and the bulb gets really hot. Our cells do not work in 100% efficiency. So when they do their job, their metabolic rate, their metabolism, they're, they're breaking things down and building things up, they're generating heat as a byproduct because they're not perfectly efficient. And that is how we maintain our body temperature. And we call that the calorigenic effect. The fact that oxygen consumption generates heat is called the calorigenic effect. So we also use our thyroid gland to regulate our body temperature. The more active your cells are, the warmer you get. Think about just exercising. You start to exercise, your body heats up, you gotta cool it down, so you sweat. Because the more active your cells are, the more heat you're going to produce. So thyroid hormone is basically about regulating your metabolic rate. The more active you need your cells to be, the more thyroid hormone is going to get secreted. The less active you need them to be, the less will be secreted. It also stimulates your appetite, so it makes you hungry. It increases the rate at which we break down our substrates, the things we eat, like proteins, carbohydrates, fats, etc. We need them to synthesize ATP. So it makes sense that if we're going to increase the metabolic rate, we're also going to increase our breakdown of these energy sources. It also makes you more alert, uh, makes your reflexes faster. Uh, it stimulates growth hormone secretion because it's going to help you grow. 
So if you need to grow or maintain your tissues, you need to increase your metabolic rate. So those things are gonna go hand in hand. It's also gonna increase your heart rate, your respiratory rate, stroke volume, which is how strong your heart contracts. Um, it all makes sense, right? So all of these things kind of go hand in hand with increasing your cellular activity. The more you increase your cellular activity, the more you need all these other things to happen as well. Now, here's another thing about the thyroid. It also secretes another hormone. And these are not the follicular cells. These are cells that are in between the thyroid follicles called parafollicular cells. Sometimes they call them C cells, which might be easy to remember because they secrete a hormone called calcitonin. Calcitonin is the opposite of parathyroid hormone. It actually stimulates osteoblasts of osseous tissue to increase their activity and promote the increase of bone formation. So osteoblasts secrete hydroxyapatite, which is the matrix of bone tissue, and increases bone density. So this is mostly active in kids, right? So in adults, our bones aren't growing anymore, at least not in length. And so we don't really see a lot of calcitonin need in adults. So it's, it's much less in volume uh, in adults than you see in kids, maybe even like 10 times less. So that's, but keep in mind, calcitonin will never be considered a thyroid hormone. When someone says thyroid hormone, they're talking about T3 and T4. The thyroid is an extremely clinically significant gland. Thyroid conditions are very common. There's thyroid cancer resulting in tumors of the thyroid, and there are functional conditions that cause the thyroid to be underactive or overactive. They are hypothyroidism, which means underactive, and hyperthyroidism, which means overactive. Hypothyroidism occurs when the body doesn't have enough thyroid hormone circulating, resulting in symptoms that could include fatigue, weight gain, sensitivity to cold, dry skin, hair loss, and depression. It's commonly treated with synthetic hormone replacement medication. A common one uh, that we know of is called Synthroid. It's been around for a really long time. Hypothyroidism has multiple causes. It can be primary, meaning the thyroid itself just isn't functioning well. It could be a pituitary issue that affects the thyroid because it's not releasing enough thyroid-stimulating hormone. It could be due to the thyroid being removed because of cancer, or maybe it was radiated to treat hypothyroidism and now it's underactive. And sometimes new mothers experience temporary hypothyroidism because the thyroid gland is inflamed after giving birth. Now hyperthyroidism is the opposite of hypothyroidism, where the thyroid gland produces an excessive amount of thyroid hormone. There's too much circulating. This leads to an overactive metabolism and can cause symptoms such as weight loss, rapid heartbeat, sweating, nervousness, irritability, and an intolerance to heat. The way they treat this is with medications that reduce thyroid hormone production. They could actually use radioactive iodine therapy to destroy some of the thyroid gland, or they can actually remove part or all of the thyroid with surgery if it's really that bad. There are two really common types of hyperthyroidism, and they are Graves' disease and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Graves' disease is the most common cause of hyperthyroidism, and it is 
basically an autoimmune disorder where the body is producing antibodies that stimulate the thyroid gland to produce too much thyroid hormone. And Hashimoto's thyroiditis is an inflammation of the thyroid gland that is actually making it produce too much thyroid hormone. Okay, let's talk about the parathyroid glands. Sounds like thyroid gland, and the reason is because they're very close to the thyroid gland. In fact, the four parathyroid glands are partially embedded in the thyroid glands. So like I said, there are four parathyroid glands. They're each about the size of a grain of rice, and there are two in each lobe of the thyroid gland. So the thyroid has a left lobe and a right lobe, and posteriorly in those lobes are partially embedded two parathyroid glands each. Now you may remember that I've discussed the parathyroid gland already in this podcast back in episode 12 when we talked about the skeletal system and calcium homeostasis because that's what the parathyroid glands are concerned with, calcium homeostasis. The only hormone they secrete is parathyroid hormone. And they do it in direct response to changes in calcium levels in the blood. The pituitary gland does not regulate them. The hypothalamus does not regulate them. They are regulated directly by levels of calcium in the bloodstream. Parathyroid hormone is going to do a few different things that are going to influence calcium levels. Now, the first thing what they want to do is they want to raise blood calcium levels. So when blood calcium levels dip, even a small amount, that is going to stimulate the parathyroid glands to secrete parathyroid hormone, also known as PTH. Doesn't take much. And the role of those hormones is to get the blood calcium levels back up. And they're going to do that in a few different ways. I'm not going to reiterate them all exactly. You can review episode 12, and that will give you a little bit more detail. But essentially what they're going to do is they're going to increase the breakdown of bone tissue by osteoclasts, which releases calcium back into the bloodstream, and inhibit the secretion of new bone matrix by osteoblasts. That's a main thing that they're going to do. They're also going to stimulate the kidneys to reduce the amount of calcium lost in the urine and to get them to finish calcitriol synthesis, which is another hormone that increases blood calcium by increasing the absorption of calcium from your diet. So parathyroid hormone is a powerful increaser of blood calcium levels. And we know that calcium is really important as an ion for nerve signal transmission, for muscle contraction, for a lot of things. It's not just about the density of your bones. And parathyroid hormone is only charged with helping to regulate calcium homeostasis. All right, I think that's going to do it for the thyroid and parathyroid glands, and that's going to be it for this episode. We have a lot to do in the endocrine system still. We have the pancreas, we have the gonads, we have lots of different hormones, the adrenal glands, the pineal. We got a lot to do. So stay tuned for more episodes on the endocrine system. We will finish it up. It's just going to take a couple of more episodes. Once again, I want to thank my very special guest, Jennifer Bentley, who was extremely generous with her time and sharing with us her experience and expertise in the nursing field. I want to thank you all, the listeners, for continuing to subscribe and download and rate the podcast if you get a chance. I do appreciate that. 
And don't forget to send me your questions. I really do like getting questions from you all and um, I can answer them on the podcast. I hope the stuff you got in this episode is going to help you get your beer better in A&P. I'll talk to you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities.